Daniel chapter 11, if you'll, you'll open your Bibles there. And as you're making your way there, by way of introduction, you know, several years ago, um, I, uh, I discovered this leak at my house. I, I, we, I was there in the house, all of a sudden the ceiling develops this leak. And, you know, it just seemed like this little sort of pinhole kind of thing at first. And I'm looking at it and, uh, and, and I'm wondering, where on earth is this water coming from? I, I lived in a two-story house. This was coming from, you know, the, the ceiling on the, the first floor. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, do we leave water on upstairs? What's going on? I, I, I can't find anything upstairs. But all I know is that this leak is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, you know, the drywall starts to bubble and grow. And I'm thinking, there, you know, this is, this is really bad news. Well, before, you know, I, I'm trying to find the water source. I actually went to the street and I turned the water off. And the, and the bubble's still growing, still growing. Well, here's what happened. The, the, the ceiling exploded, and all of this foul just water comes streaming out. Well, as it turns out, we had uh, the toilet upstairs was backed up, and the plunger was used on the toilet, and it blew out the drain line. It gets worse. The leak was in my kitchen, Right? Just disgusting. And so, so I see this, and it becomes, you know, apparent as I'm, as I'm seeing this that i got to call in a professional. Because I'm normally a do-it-yourselfer kind of guy, um, but I wasn't doing this myself. So I called in someone, and they came in. And I was hoping, man, that this, you know, I, I'm, I'm an optimist, but I was hoping that it could be a quick fix. There ain't no quick fix in this. What ended up happening, this guy goes in there, gets his head in the pro, he's looking around. Well, what he discovers is, is that this drain line had been leaking for God knows how long. I mean, it, it basically, there was, the, the, the PVC joint had no pipe dope on it. They had just, when they built the house, they just stuck it together. And so over the years, this thing had sort of worked loose and it had been, it had, it had, had a, 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 just a small leak for, for months. And, and so the, the, the space there on the floor was filled with foul, gunky, moldy. And this guy took a test and basically we ended up tearing out three rooms of drywall uh, there was mold throughout the house, and they had to do mold abatement. We, we were out of our house for six weeks. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And the basic thing that this guy told me when he was there in my kitchen, when I was still hoping against hope that this could be something quick, he basically said, Mr. Leavenworth, this is going to get worse before it gets better. That's when I knew I was in, in big trouble. The good news is my insurance covered it, so thank God for that. But it was, uh, it was, a, it was a lousy experience, horrible, uh, a horrible thing. And I tell you this story by way of introduction to, to Daniel chapter 11 because the key to understanding Daniel chapter 11 is very much like my damaged house. Uh, in, in, in this way, what God is going to show Daniel here in Daniel chapter 11 is that, that in Israel... It's not going to be a quick fix for y'all. 
You know, basically, they've been in captivity for 70 years. They were disobedient to God. The straw that broke the camel's back was that they never gave the Sabbath land or the land, the Sabbath rest that God had dictated that it should have. Hey, work your, work your land for six years. On the seventh year, don't work it. Give it a rest. Uh, and, and it was, you know, fundamentally to teach the, the Israelites how to trust in God, how to trust in him to provide for them. God telling them, listen, I'm going to supply all your needs. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to take care of you. And, and, and Israel, man, they all they could see was, well, look, there's, let's, let's make hay while the sun is shining, man. We can, we can continue to grow the, the crops. And I know that God told us not to do it, but man, that, that's just a year's worth of income that we're going to be losing if we, if we don't do this and all. And so they, they didn't obey God. And so God, you know, caused them to go into captivity for 70 years, the number of years that, that they had neglected to give the land its Sabbath rest and God doing that work. And they're watching the clock man and Daniel seeing man 70 years has passed and now it's our time to get out of here you told us how long we were on time out you know and now we get to go and what God is showing Daniel here is that listen you're (laughs) basically you're going to get out but but it ain't going to be what you expect and and so what God's going to do in Daniel chapter 11 is he's going to show Daniel what lies in their future and for Israel, what lies in their future is, is not a very pleasant experience. Because what God's going to show them is, well, he's going he's to show them how these different nations are going to be established and different kings are going to rise into power and how this one king is going to fight against this other king and he's going to primarily focus on the northern and southern kingdoms and we're going to see through the text here how they're fighting it and they're battling it back and forth. And the significance of that is, is that Israel sits right smack dab in the center, right in no man's land between these two kingdoms. So every time the one kingdom goes goes in wars against the other kingdom, Israel pays the price. And so it's changing hands back and forth. And every time, you know, they're coming in and, they, and they're, going to, they're going to attack the, the, the nation of Israel and the, the inhabitants therein. They're going to kill tens of thousands uh, of, of Jews. It's going to be a very bad experience for them. And this is what Daniel chapter 11 is all about. That God prophetically ahead of time, he's telling Daniel the significance of what's about to happen. That listen, uh, this, uh, this, is, this is going to be, it's going to get better, but it's going to get worse first. And, and so that's, that's what they're, they're, they're going to go through. Now the, 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 the big idea for us here in Daniel chapter 11, I'll just tell you this. The idea is that God is in control of our lives. That's the, that's the big idea of what we're going to work through in our text here. God's in control. Ultimately, man, regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstance, and, I, and I'm mindful of the fact as I'm putting this study together and as I'm, as I'm here talking to you today, that, that there are many of you here in a situation or a circumstance that you hadn't counted on, that, that you hadn't hoped for, that you certainly would not have wanted to be in or to be going through. Uh, some of you today, you're, you're in a financial circumstance. Some of you today, you're in a relational circumstance. Some of you today, you're in a medical circumstance. It, it, it's, it's, it's something that you hadn't counted on, planned on, hoped for, but nevertheless, you're here. And that's, 
Man, the, the, the big idea of Daniel chapter 11 is that, listen, God is sovereign over the events of your life. And even if, if things aren't going the way you would have hoped for or the way that you would have planned, and even though it may well be that things are going to get worse for you before they get better, ultimately the hope and the big idea of, of Daniel chapter 11 is that God ultimately is in control. He's sovereign. He's overseeing all of the, the, the events in our lives, and we can trust in him. Now, let me say this. Daniel chapter 11 is largely, for us now today, it's largely a study of history. Because we have the benefit of looking into the rearview mirror of history and seeing all of these events now in the past having taken place. Now, when God gives Daniel this vision uh, through this angel in Daniel chapter 11, these are all events that are yet in the future. As a matter of fact, because they're so strikingly fulfilled, the, the people in, in the scholars now try to change the date. And they try to say that, you know, it really wasn't written when it was written. And they ascribe a particular date to it. And, and there, are, there, are, there are several scholars that hold to, no, this is when Daniel was actually written. Which is interesting because when you look at the Septuagint version of, 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 the, of the Bible, which, which is documented when it was written, it's fully 60 years ahead of when several of these guys maintain that Daniel was written. Uh, and uh, the, the reason they don't want to accept the date that Daniel was written is because it is prophetic in nature. Now, w- what I need you to understand is this, that this, as we're going to go through this, some sections of the Bible, when you teach through them, it, it's like cotton candy. Man, it's just, it's just tastes good, and it's good going down, and it's just easy to eat, you know? Uh, it's like, you know, I don't know, pick, a, pick something that you enjoy. I was sitting in my study last night, and I had a jar of pumpkin seeds, and pretty soon I'm like, who ate all my pumpkin seeds? You know? <laughs> they, they're just easy to go down, man, you know? And, and so some sections of the Bible are like that. Other sections of the Bible, they're, they're like... They're like Lima beans, man. They're, you know, they're, it's, it's, I know some of you are weird. You like lima beans. I don't know. Uh, pick something you don't like. It's some, some of them are, are a little bit more difficult. You really got to chew on it. That's Daniel chapter 11. Um, so I want to encourage you here as we're going to get into this. You, just, you really need to, 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 to chew on this and, and just to be geared up and ready uh, to, dig, uh, to dig into what God uh, has to say to us here. Again, the big idea is regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, man, God's sovereign. He's in control. All right. With that, so let me just tell you how I'm going to do this. I'm going to basically, I'm going to read through, give you sort of the big idea. There's a lot of history to go over, so I'm just going to kind of go real quickly through the first 21 verses and kind of go through history with you, and then I'm going to come back. We'll make a few uh, observations. We'll call it a day. Sound good? All right. Daniel chapter 11, I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 20, where we left off of chapter 10. Then he said, do you know, this is the angel speaking to to Daniel. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Now, he's already told him a few verses back why he came to him. In fact, in verse 14, if you just look up at uh, chapter 10, verse 14, here's what he said to him. He said, now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people, specifically the nation of Israel, the Jews, what are going to happen to your people? 
in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now, Daniel, he's a man of visions. He's a man who interprets dreams. This is nothing new to him, but for some reason, when this angel appears to him, he flat out loses it, and the next several verses are Daniel just completely checking out, you know, and, and saying, I can't believe you, you know, you're talking to me kind of thing, and so the, the, he's, he's strengthened. He kind of has his little freak out section, session. And, and, and then, you know, the, the, in verse 18, the one having the likeness of a man touched me, he said, and strengthened me. And so now he gets geared up. All right, I'm ready to hear. And so the guy says to him again in verse 20, okay, do you know why I've come to you? Now, I just told you. Are you with me still, Daniel, here? You, you're still tracking with me. You know why I've come to you. Now he begins to talk. And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. Now, you remember, he told us there in chapter 10 that he had responded to Daniel's prayer. Immediately, he was sent by God. As soon as Daniel set his heart, his face, his mind to, to, to the Lord to pray, to seek the Lord. Hey, it's been 70 years, Lord. And now our time is, is, is up. What's going on kind of thing. And the angel said... I was sent the moment you started praying, but he, but he told him, I was delayed 21 days getting to you. Why? Because there was spiritual warfare. And God allowed that d- delay to take place, but Satan resisted him. And, and so, you know, as he says this, uh, now I must return to this spiritual warfare. Significance for us, just as an aside, is when I talk about the difficulty of Daniel chapter 11, it's one of the most difficult chapters of the Bible I've ever taught, um, is that, well, no doubt it's difficult. Satan, he opposed this message from the very beginning. He caused this angel to be delayed three full weeks because he didn't want this message to be delayed. And so he says, hey, man, the, the spiritual warfare is real, and I got to get back into the fight. Um, and, and so he says, uh, and when I have gone forth, continuing there at the end of verse 20, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. Verse 21, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Verse 1, chapter 11, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, you might want to circle or underline that phrase, confirm and strengthen. That's, that's going to figure prominently uh, here for us in, in, uh, in just a few minutes. Um, but uh, that, that, that phrase, confirmed and strengthened, literally uh, what it means is hardened safety, hardened safety and protection. Hardened safety and protection. You know, when terrorists uh, attack uh, targets, they look for soft targets. This is the opposite of that. This is, this is a hardened, protected uh, uh, thing that, that this angel is talking about. And he says, basically, this is what he did with Darius the Mede. Now, now I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. When I was a kid, I used to have uh, my, uh, a German Shepherd. Um, my, my dad bought a German Shepherd from the San Diego Police Department because he hated his handler and tried to kill him. And so my dad thought, well, this would be a great pet. And so my dad <laughs> bought this, seriously, true story, what was he thinking? Bought this dog, brought it home, me and my two sisters, and the dog loved us hated anybody who didn't like us. You know, my mom found that out. A traveling salesman came to the door one time and, and he got out within an inch of losing his life, you know. 
And I used to, when my friends, you know, I'd be playing, and I remember one particular day, my, my friends, they, they, were, they were mean to me. And so I went and got my dog, and came, I came walking out with my dog. Now, that dog provided me hardened safety and protection. I would just tell you that. Those guys who meant me harm were, were not going to touch me. This is the idea here, that, that, that this, this angel is saying, listen, I'm the one that provided this, this hardened safety and protection for Darius uh, the me. And, and, and the, the, the thing that we're going to see here as we continue is that God hardened and protected many rulers throughout history according to his sovereign will. That's important. We're going to come back to that. But that's what we're about to see now as we go through this history. So we're going to jump into the history section. And this is basically God telling Daniel ahead of time, look, here's what's coming. Here's, here's all of the, the rulers and the kings and all that, that I am going to harden, that I'm going to protect, that I'm going to allow to be established. And, and here's the whole general hospital, the whole thing unfolding for you. There you go. He says, verse 2, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. He's referring there, the, the, the fourth king, to, to Xerxes, who, who was indeed the fourth king that would rise up. All of this happened just as the angel had, had, had told Daniel, just as Daniel prophesied here and wrote it down. All of this happened according to, to the way it was told. And so the fourth shall be far richer than them all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And we know from history that he's speaking here of Alexander the Great. Uh, and, and when he is arisen, verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And again, from history, we know that this is exactly what happened. Alexander the Great was an incredible, mighty warrior. He rose up. He conquered, uh, you know, the, the, the world in, in lightning speed. And by the age of 28, he had no wars left to fight. He had other stuff that he wanted to do. But he ended up dying a very young man, a very untimely uh, death. And that's significant. We'll come back to that hopefully if we have uh, some time. Verse 5. Also, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. His princes, this prince was a guy named uh, Seleucus. He was one of the, the four generals that was going to take over this area that Alexander the Great had conquered. Alexander the Great's kingdom broken up among four generals. Now, the, the Bible focuses on two of them, the king of the north and the king of the south. And it pretty much ignores the other two kings and, and kingdoms. And here's why. Because God's eye is always on Jerusalem. His eye is always on his people. And, and the king of the north and the king of the south, they're on opposite ends. One in Syria and one there in Egypt. And, and they're, because they're, Jerusalem lies right in the middle, they're constantly, their incursions, wars against one another, 
constantly affecting Israel. And so this is why God's focus is entirely on the, the northern and the southern kingdom. And what we're going to see here for the next you know, 15 verses or so is just this ongoing drama of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom fighting one another back and forth and the power shifting from one to the other. And so he says there in verse 5, All, Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall uh, gain power. And so you've got General Ptolemy of, uh, of the Egypt, uh, and, and you've got General Seleucus uh, of Syria, the king of the north. Um, and, and so he continues and, and, and says... Um, uh, you know, the king of the south, he, General Ptolemy of Egypt, he's the more powerful, uh, and he shall gain power uh, over him, that's the, the, the king uh, of the south, and have um, dominion, uh, have dominion, his dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up and with those uh, given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now what you have is Ptolemy, the king of the south, he gives his daughter Berenice uh, to Seleucus, the king of Syria. And again, this prophesied ahead of time before it even happens. Now I'm filling in the names for you because we know from history that this is what happened. And it's an interesting thing. Here you have Seleucus, and, and he's the, the, the king of, of Syria, and he's married to a gal named Laodice. And, and they're happily married, but Ptolemy, um, the, the, the king of the south, he's stronger than this guy. He wants to unify both kingdoms. And so what he says to him is, hey, Jack, listen, I'm going to give you my daughter, and, and you marry my daughter, and that will connect our kingdoms. And, and obviously, I'm not going to attack you if you got my daughter, and you're not going to attack me because you, you, know, you married my daughter. And so we'll strengthen the two kingdoms together. We'll, we'll bind them to the kingdoms together. And, and so basically... Seleucus says, look, I, I, I got my own chick, man. I got, I'm married. We're, we're cool. We're tight. I don't want to, you know, I'm, I'm fine. And basically what Ptolemy tells him is, um, listen, you're going to marry my daughter or I'm going to kill you. You know, so we're going to have this peace. We're going to have this relationship. So, so, you know, here comes the bride, man. She's all yours. And, and so what happens is, is that Seleucus sends Laodice away. And he goes ahead, he says, well, since you put it that way, you know, she is kind of cute. And so they get married, and uh, they have a son, but, but in time, King Ptolemy dies. And so as soon as, as King Ptolemy dies, Seleucus brings Laodice back. He's like, well, now I get, I get my, my wife that I love back, so he brings her back in. Now, you ladies are familiar with the, the saying, hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned. So Laodice comes back in. She says, not cool. And so the first thing she does is she poisons uh, her, 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 her husband. She poisons Seleucus. She's like, take that, you cheating dog. There you go. And now she's not content just to kill him. She kills Berenice, and she kills the son that they had together as well, poisons them all. 
And so now she and, and, and her son take over this, this, this kingdom, uh, the king of Syria there. And, um, and so that's, that's what happens. There's this bitter, you know, intrigue and, and all. And so verse 7, the, the prophecy continues. And, and this angel says, uh, but from a branch of her roots. He's speaking now of, 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 of Berenice. And so he says, from a branch of her roots shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter uh, the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them uh, and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive into Egypt uh, with their princes. You know it's a bad day when, when your gods get taken captive. Don't you, don't you hate that? When your gods are, are taken away from you, you know? Just, just, just a little, you know, hint. If your gods can be stolen, you know... <laughs> You might be on the wrong team. I don't know. And, and I hope we've got time to come back and look into that a little bit more. But, but here's what happens. Uh, you know, he shall carry their gods captive to Israel with their princes. Uh, and that word princes literally means molten uh, image. And so it's talking about their little trinkets and their examples of gods. Again, uh, just a cool thing to dig into if we have time. And their precious articles of silver uh, and gold. History tells us they had something like 1,500 little uh, idols and trinkets and, and, and objects of worship that they would worship. That's what this is referring to. Uh, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Now, so history tells us, here's what happened. Berenice was killed um, because, you know, it, <laughs> here... Uh, the Seleucius's wife, uh, Laodice, came back bitter and mad, and so she, she killed her. But when, when she killed her and then put her own son into the, the throne, Berenice's brothers came after the king of the north, and, and they prevail. And not only do they defeat them again, but they steal their gods and, uh, and, and all. And so we get to verse 9, and it says, Also the king of the north shall come to the king kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So what is this? Well, the king of the north, Syria, counterattacks unsuccessfully. Okay, so, so Berenice's brothers, they all come in, they're mad, they attack, they fight them and all, and then the king of the north, they counterattack, and they're unsuccessful. But, verse 10, however, it says, his sons shall stir up strife, and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. That's speaking of the nation of Israel. Remember, they're right in the middle. So this is what it's talking about. He's going to overwhelm, pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Uh, And the king uh, of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. Verse 12, And when he is taken away the multitude his heart will be lifted up uh, and he will cast down tens of thousands but he will not prevail. Now this is Ptolemy the fourth. 
uh, who was the king of the south at this time. And this has just jumped ahead a little bit in history. And so now the king of the south uh, gathers this great army and attacks the north. And they, they defeat the north and they take a lot of treasure. But he didn't take full advantage. When, when he went in with his army and he defeated them, he didn't take full advantage and subjugate them. It's kind of like when you know, we went in and, and we swept in and we defeated Iraq, but we didn't occupy Iraq. Um, and so what happens then is that just sort of leaves the door open for, for all sorts of problems and, and, and heartaches. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying we should have occupied Iraq. I'm just saying that that's the situation here. And so he didn't take full advantage. He didn't subjugate the people. And that's why it says he will cast down tens of thousands, but he'll not be strengthened by it because he didn't take advantage of it. Um, and so uh, verse 13, for the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. Lima beans. Lima beans, okay? Stay with me. We've got to dig into this. So the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of, of some years uh, with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people, speaking of the Jews, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. And so the king of the north comes back again. This is the idea. And, and this would be Antiochus Mag, uh, Magus, known as Antiochus the Great. Um, this is not Antiochus the Epiphanes, who, who comes later, and we'll look at here, we'll conclude with him, who is a, a kind of a type or a picture of Antichrist for us. Um, this, is, this is his predecessor, Antiochus uh, Magus, and Antio- no, again, known as Antiochus the Great. And, and he says, but many shall stand up. And so we know again from history that Philip of Macedon joined with him against the south at this point. We know that some of the Jews joined against him against the south uh, at this point. And in verse 15, it tells us, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound. A siege mound, they, they, would, they would encamp around a city. They'd build a, a big mound around them. They wouldn't let any supplies come in. They wouldn't let anybody go out. They basically, you know, wait the person out. Uh, and so they built a siege mound uh, and um, the, the siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. Verse 16, but he who comes after or against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. When he talks about standing in the glorious land, it's talking about he's standing in, in, uh, in the nation of, uh, of Israel, in Jerusalem there. Um, verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter uh, with strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. So Antiochus the Great comes and he builds a great siege mound. He takes the south, and a guy named uh, Urugetes is the king of the south in Egypt at this time. Uh, and Antiochus the Great, he took his daughter and he made the deal with, with, 
with Urgetes to marry his daughter. Again, he's trying, trying to strengthen uh, his position. And, and again, he, he figures that when, when she gets there, that the kingdom of Egypt is, is going to be you know, for the north and that they're not going to have uh, this fighting anymore. Now, if he would have read uh, this prophecy of Daniel, he would have known that it wasn't going to work out. Uh, it was right there for him, no such luck. And so he did this. But what happened was um, when the marriage was made... And his daughter became his wife. Interesting little tidbit. His daughter, little gal by the name of Cleopatra. Uh, not the Cleopatra you think of. It's kind of her great-grandmother. But nevertheless, his daughter Cleopatra became his wife. Uh, and rather than siding with her father, she actually dug her husband. Uh, she's like, I like this guy. She sided with him. Uh, and, uh, and so now he's sort of out in the cold there. His plans weren't, weren't realized. Uh, verse 18, after this, after his failure to unify this kingdom, uh, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler um, shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So what happened is, unable to get Egypt, Antiochus the Great, he turned to fight Asia Minor and Greece. And, and so what he did to do this, and again, all of this is history. So what he did to do this is he gathered a Navy ship, or a Navy force of about 300 ships, and he began to travel in the Mediterranean. Uh, and he, he began to fight actually against Rome, who was sort of rising uh, to power at this time, not in their full strength, but they're rising in power. And what happens is he loses. Rome uh, defeats him. And so in verse 19, what we're going to see is he goes home broke. It says, uh, then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Now, here's what happened. Rome in these days, when they fought you and they beat you, they gave you the bill. <laughs> There's an interesting thought, right? Hey, it cost us, you know, $12 million to, to whoop your fanny and so pay up, you know, and that was, that was what they did. So not only did he lose, but they gave him a bill and they said, I'll tell you what, you can make payments on it. So he goes home. He's like, now I got this tax bill. How am I going to pay this tax bill? So as he goes back to his own land, he, he raids a temple in his own land, basically says, well, I know you guys got money. You churches always got money. And so he goes in there and he takes money from, from this temple and the people get so upset, they kill him, right? Don't touch our money, man. And so this is, this is what happens here. Now, verse 20, there shall arise in his place. So he gets replaced, one who imposes taxes. So apparently Democrats show up. Uh, here, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Just kidding. Sort of. So there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. No, they just poisoned him. Uh, and it's basically saying he wasn't destroyed violently. They just sort of, you know, said, no, we don't like you and your tax policies. And, and they, they, they poisoned him. Don't get any uh, ideas. And, <laughs> and so, uh, verse 21, and, and in his place shall arise a vile person 
to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And this is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a figure in history that uh, was very brutal. Uh, we're going to look at him more next week. And we're going to dig into this more next week. We'll, we'll, we'll stop our progression right here and kind of come back and, and make some observations. But just this word about Antiochus Epiphanes is that he serves as a picture of Antichrist. And where we're going in the coming weeks is we're going to start getting into the prophecies concerning the end of the world and the, and the, the end times. And so it's going to get, you know, very, very interesting here uh, as we start looking at, at the prophecies that have yet uh, to be fulfilled. But what lessons can we learn from all this? I mean, it's a great history lesson and it's, and it's super encouraging for me. To, to know that our God exists outside of time and he calls balls or strikes before the pitcher ever even shows up. He says, here's what's happening, here's how it's going to go down. Super encouraging to me. And there's a lot of lessons that we can take from this. And the first, first thing I would, I would have for you, maybe you want to write this first point down. Listen, God is the sovereign author of all governing authority. God is the sovereign author of all governing authority. You see, just as he confirmed and strengthened Darius the Mede, and just as he appointed the succeeding three Persian kings, and Alexander the Great after them, and Ptolemy, and the Seleucid dynasties, so also God is so sovereign over all authority today. Nobody has their power except that God has established it. And that includes the authority that he's established in your home, in your workplace, in your church, in, in the government. And can I just state the obvious? The, the implication when God establishes authority is that you and I are to be subject to that authority. I mean, it, it's just obvious, right? Romans 13, 1 and 2, upon the screen, it says this, Let every soul... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves." Now, that word subject there, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, that, that's the Greek word hupotasso. And we translate this word, submit. I'm sorry to cuss from the pulpit, but that's the translation, okay? Submit. And it literally means to place under. And I want you to notice here in Romans 13 that it uses the word authorities in the plural. The implication is that there are many authorities in our lives that you and I are called to submit to. The Bible is replete with examples of, of relational uh, contexts in which we have those that are in authority over us that we have to submit to. James 4, 7 says that we are all called to submit to God. Ephesians 5, 22, ladies, you're called to submit to your own husbands. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, employees, you're called to submit to your boss. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, you younger people are called to submit to your older people. Hebrews 13.17, Christians are called to be submissive to their pastors. 
those that, that are, are leaders of them uh, in, in, a, in a spiritual setting. And here in Romans 13, the, screen, the, the, the scripture we've got on the screen, we're called to submit to government. Now, when you talk about submission, people many times have a wrong attitude about submission. Basically, the attitude is, I, I, if I don't agree with you, I'm not going to submit. And, and we talked about these things before. Uh, certainly, when we went through 1 Peter, we talked about this. When we went through the book of Romans, we talked about this. And the, and the issue and the idea, if you're with us through those studies, you know that submission isn't submission until you disagree. That's when it's actually defined uh, in its truest sense. Submission is when you put yourself under the authority of someone else, irregardless of the, what you, you know, think and, and, and your opinion about this. Now, let me, let me just put out a, a quick caveat. It's not in my notes, but I just want to say it because from time to time I'll, I'll get a note on this when I talk about the issue of submission. Um, that, you know, if you are a woman and you're in an abusive relationship, you are not called to submit to being physically abused. No one's called to submit to that. When the Bible says wives submit to your own husbands. It never means that you are called to submit to ungodly behavior. Now, having said that, the, the, the thing about submission is that everyone thinks that they're the exception to the rule when you talk about submission. Everybody looks for the loopholes. Everybody wants to talk, you know, about the extenuating circumstances of, of, you know, why in their unique setting that they should not be called to submit. And I'll I'll talk about that in just a minute. But let me let me just, you know, talk to you about this issue of, of submission when you talk about its definition in the truest sense, meaning that you come under means that you yield to the authority of another person. And I, I got a great illustration for this compliments uh, of an angry trucker a couple of weeks ago. When I was getting on the freeway, you know when you get on the freeway, the people that are actually already on the freeway, they've got the right of way? You know that, right? I mean, and, and so, but the, the issue is when we get on the freeway, we want to get on and we want to merge as quickly as possible. And sometimes in doing that, if we're driving aggressively, we might, you know, cut somebody off, which, which just means I just didn't submit to that person. I said, hey, you can go first right after me, is what I said. You know, and so I'm getting on the freeway the other day, and, and there's, there's this trucker. Well, he wants me to submit. He's, he understood the rules of the road. He knew that, that, that he had the right of way. He knew that he had, you know, 20,000-pound vehicle. I got a 2,000-pound vehicle. You know, he wins. And so I had to, 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 to break and to slow way down to get behind him. Why? Well, I had to yield to his authority. He had the right of way. He had the bigger vehicle, uh, and he won. So I had to yield to him. That's the picture of of subordination. That's the picture of of submission. And, And that's the idea here is that God places all authority and, and as we read through here and as we see all of these governments, one of the, the, the first lessons there is, look, some of these are good, some of these are bad, all of them get their authority from God. And that's important. And again, that comes back to why? Well, because when we have to face issues of, of, of submission to authority, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in the government... We all think that we're the exception to the rule. And I've been a pastor a long time, and I've, I've dealt with submission in, in, in many different relationships. And can I, can I just share with you, as a, as a guy who's been doing this for over 20 years, 
What I've discovered is that people struggle with a combination of doubt, fear, and pride when it comes to the issue of submission. Doubt, fear, and pride. Basically, it starts with doubt. And the doubt is, they're wrong. They're wrong. And that's that, for many, that's the trump card. They're wrong, I don't have to submit to it. No, no, no. Because God didn't give you that authority. And so it starts with doubt. Hey, this person's wrong. Well, and then fear creeps in because you go, hey, not only are they wrong, man, they're, they're wrong and they're wrong a lot and I can't trust them because ultimately this is going to hurt me. You know, a woman in a marriage and a husband saying, look, I made this decision. I want you to submit to it. She's like, this is a train wreck. And I've watched you train wreck how many times? And you want to drag me and the kids through your, your latest train wreck. And so, so, you know, you have doubt, you have fear. And then finally what happens is pride gets right. Pride's the kicker. Is right on the heels of the doubt and fear. And basically what pride says is, who does he think he is anyway? I'm so tired of all this shenanigans. I'm tired of this guy, you know, being King Farouk and, you know, making me go through this. And so we're, while we're called to submit, and while the Bible's very clear, this person's been given this position of authority. Man, we have doubt, we have fear, we have pride. And at the end of the day, we have, I, you can't make me, I ain't doing it. And, and here's what I want you to see. And, and this, is, this is really key to this. I want you, if you just look there in verse 1, chapter 11. Will you notice with me what this angel says to Daniel? See, the, the, the angel, it says also in the first year of Darius the Mede. First year, that's important. I, even I, stood up to confirm and to strengthen him. What's significant about that? Well, think about the first year of Darius the Mede. Because as we've been going through Daniel, we remember the first year of Darius the Mede. Do you remember? Do you remember what was going on during the first year of Darius the Mede? Well, let me refresh your memory. Daniel chapter 6. It's, it's when Daniel and his companions are, have risen into favor. And Darius the Mede, now he's in his first year of his reign. He recognizes there's something special about these guys and all of the other advisors, they don't like it. And so they throw these guys under the bus. And they go to Darius, this young ruler, and they basically trick him. And they said, hey, why don't you, you know, cause everybody to, 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 to worship you and all. And, and he's like, oh, that's cool. And whoever doesn't worship you, man, well, what we're going to do with them, we're going to toss them into a fiery furnace. He's like, cool. Yeah, all right. That sounds good to me. Not realizing he's sentencing Daniel and his buddies to death by doing this. And, and so the, these guys watching Daniel and, and all of his companions like a hawk. And, and they catch him and, hey, they're praying, they're praying, they're not praying to you, they're not worshiping you. And they go running to, to Darius. Now Darius is mad and he stays up as late as he can. Because in, in that law and in that culture, you had to pass sentence on the same day. And so, you know, it's getting into the 11th hour. They're like, look, dude, you, you have to... The law is clear. You passed it. You got to kill him. And so he agonizes trying to find a way to get him out. Can't find a way of getting him out. So what happens? Fiery furnace, man. That's where you're going. Or I'm sorry. I'm talking about the fiery furnace. It's the mouth of the, the, the lions. They're going to get thrown to the lions. And so, hey, you're going to get tossed to the lions. Here's what's going to happen. It's for you. You're, you're, you're going to get fed to the lions. Nothing you can do to, 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 to stop this. And so... He, he does this. Now, if you look there in Daniel chapter 6, here's the significance of, of this, that this, God's anointing those in authority, that he's confirming, that he's strengthening. Well, Daniel chapter 6, 
we read, if I can get to Daniel chapter 6, we'll pick it up verse 18. He says, now the king went to his palace, this is Darius, he spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, and also his sleep went from him. And then the king arose very early in the morning, and he went in haste to the den of lions. He's, he's agonizing over this. And verse 20, and when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. And the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Here it is. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Here's the point. Get it. The idea here is that Darius was angry because he was tricked into making this decree and his poor leadership almost cost Daniel and his companions their lives. What happened? God sent an angel. God sent an angel to stop the mouths of the lions. God sent an angel to protect and to strengthen Darius in his foolish decision. See, the point is, is that God appoints those in authority in our life. And he confirms and he can strengthen them. He confirms them, he strengthens them, and so you can submit to those who are in authority over you, even when you're convinced they're wrong, even when you're convinced this is going to be a train wreck. You can trust in God. Why? Well, because God can stop the mouths of the lions if God wants to. And I really think that's a word of the Lord for someone here today. Maybe for for a woman in, in your marriage and you're really struggling with submission. And the reason you're struggling with submission is because you can do the math and you can see if this guy has the reins of this thing, it ain't going to go so well. What I would say is let go of the reins. Because God is able to stop the mouths of the lions if he wants to. He's the one that confirmed and strengthened Darius. The angel says so himself. If he can shut the lions' mouths and work through the mistakes of a king, he can certainly work through the mistakes of your boss. He can certainly work through the mistakes of your husband. He can certainly work through the mistakes of your government. And God knows I need to hear that this week. I see these legislation that Jerry Brown is signing like he's giving away, you know, free stuff. And he's just signing the, just the, the most horrible legislation just day after day. It's like, can it possibly get any worse? Oh, yeah, it did. Look at that. Wow, it just got worse. And you think, how long is this, is this going to go on? And see, and that's God's encouragement to Daniel here in Daniel chapter 11. It's God's encouragement to us. Daniel's mourning over the state of his nation, and, and God would say to Daniel, look, I'm on the throne. Nothing happens here that I don't allow. You're right where I want you. You're right on schedule. Things happening, man. See, again, that's good news to me as I consider the state of our nation. Because, you know, I look around and, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, what Paul told Timothy, man, it, it seems readily apparent to me. Here's what he says. He said, know this, in the last days perilous times will come. 
For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. You would hope unelectable, but that's not the case. Slanderers without self-control, brutals, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I say, that's New York Times, man. And listen, Jesus said to his disciples that these things must take place as part of the end time scenario. They have to happen. And so don't get discouraged when you see these things happen. Yes, as Christians, we we ought to have as much influence as we can possibly have. And we ought to impose ungodly legislation. And we ought to fight as, as much as we can. I mean, one of the latest atrocities is, I mean, we, we, we as a nation have killed over 40 million babies by abortion. And the state of California just put in an express lane by allowing nurses and, and, uh, and, and uh, midwives to perform abortions. Like, we haven't killed enough of them, we need to kill some more. They just legalized it. We should oppose that kind of stuff. I'm all for it. We should oppose this, this horrible law that says, you know, yeah, your kid can pick whatever sex he wants to be and go in the men's room, and go in the women's room, ladies, girls' locker room, boys' locker room, whatever, it's up to him. You know? We ought to oppose that stuff. We should. But when we see it, don't get discouraged. Because God's on the throne. He's allowed the powers that, that be to be in the power that they are. Because Jesus said, this stuff's got to happen, man. It's got to happen. Hey, the second observation I, I think I'd make from, from our text here is that apart from God, the plans of man are futile. Apart from God, the plans of man, they're futile. If you look again, Daniel 11, verse 4, he's talking about Alexander the Great. And uh, he says, when he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided uh, toward the four winds of heaven... But not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And, and, and when it says that, and, and when he has arisen, that, that phrase there, it, it could also be translated this, this way. Literally, it could be translated, while he was still growing strong. While he was on his rise to power, while everything was looking rosy and awesome for him, while his plans were all being fulfilled, his kingdom will be broken up and divided. Again, reference to Alexander the Great, greatest military strategist the world has ever known. His tactics are still taught to this day in military academies. His empire stretched from Greece to Pakistan, over 20 cities bore his name. And yet he died at 32, the age of 32, still on his rise to further conquest, and the Bible barely mentions him. Barely mentions this guy. See, the psalmist said, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there's no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and in that day his plans perish. Again, the psalmist said, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. And Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let me, let me ask you a point of application today, just a, a pointed question in this regard. What are your plans? 
What plans do you have today? What, what consumes your thoughts? I saw Pastor Chuck Smith's memorial uh, last week. Um, and, uh, you know, here, just an incredible man of God. And, and, as, I, and as I was watching the memorial, um, I was reminded of, of one of the last times that Chuck talked to us as pastors. And uh, it was at the, the last pastor's retreat here um, at the Hot Springs. And uh, as he was talking to us, he, he quoted a poem that he had heard by C.T. Studd. And one of the lines from this poem, it's the recurring line throughout the poem, is this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And he said that the, just the truth of that sentiment, of, that, of that, that statement, it gripped his life. It actually had a profound impact on his life. You see, it's staggering how much we waste time on things that don't matter, isn't it? We, 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 we waste so much time on, on stuff that, 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 that never matters, that just doesn't make the matter meter, you know? I, I think of an instance with, with Peter. And Jesus there, he's talking to his disciples. He's beginning to tell them, hey, listen, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And, um, and so what's Peter do? He's like, well, that's not my plan, man. I mean, you know, we've been waiting for the Messiah, and, you know, the Messiah is supposed to help us kick Rome out and, and take back our, our land, and, and, and we're, we've all been with you. We've been right here. We thought, you know, you're going to set up your rule and reign. I'm going to get my quarter office, the whole bit, you know. And so he takes Jesus aside. He starts to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus tells him, man, get behind me, Satan. He tells him, look, you're not mindful of the things of God. Peter, you're mindful of the things of man. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I think through that and when I read through the history of some of these nations and I see guys like Alexander the Great and I see a guy who clearly was only mindful of one thing, his plan and his agenda. And I get convicted because... I can be pretty driven. And, and, and I, I know a lot of you, I met a lot of you guys, you can be pretty driven too. And sometimes, man, when we're driven on something, it's, it's our plan, it's our agenda, and, and you just get out of the way and nobody will get hurt kind of thing. And Peter, man, would go to the place to where he would, he would rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ. You're jacking up with my plan, man. This is not the way it's supposed to go. Jesus says, you're Satan right now, pal. Because all you're mindful of is, is the things of your kingdom. And I, I just wonder what you're mindful of today. And for some of you, that's the price of admission right there worth that. that that's your take home. Because God would just have you to cook on that when you go home this week. Whose agenda are you running? Whose, whose plan are you working what did Jesus do after, after he, he pulled Peter up short? He said, you're not mindful of things of God, but the things of man. Well, he called the people to himself. And when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And, and on that note, I'll just make one, one final quick observation. We'll call it quits uh, here. The third point I'd make is this. Anything you worship apart from God will ultimately fail you. Anything you worship apart from God, it's ultimately going to fail you. Check out verse 8. just wanted to, to get back here. The king comes... With an army, enters the fortress of the king of the north, and he deals with them and prevail. Verse 8, and he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. Again, princes there, it literally means molten, molten image. Jesus says, look, what's going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and loses his own soul? What's a man going to give in exchange for his soul? And here what we see is a whole nation of people, man. They, the, their whole gods, are, or their whole hope, their whole, everything they worship is wrapped up in these little gold and silver trinkets. I ask you the question this morning, what is it you worship? What's your idol? Let me ask it this way. Can your God be lost or stolen? Let me ask it this way. What is it that defines you? When when you think about, hey, who are you? And and what is it that comes to mind? What is it you tell people about yourself? Is it, hey, I'm, you know, president so-and-so. Hey, I'm married to so-and-so. Hey, I drive such and such. Turn to Psalm 115. I'll close with this. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 3. I'm going to begin reading go verses 3 through 8. Psalm 115. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols, the psalmist is talking about the, the, the Gentiles, those that, those that don't worship the Lord. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. And so is everyone who trusts in them. Those who make them are like them. Listen. There's a day coming when you're going to stand before God. And and when you stand before God, what you don't want to be is somebody who was so stuff-centered, so status-centered, that you become like your stuff. And what does it look like when you become like your stuff, like the psalmist talks about? Well, on the day you stand before God, are you going to say to him, I'm the president of this corporation? Are you going to say to God, I'm the owner of 
such and such. Or you say, I'm the mother of so and so. Well, I'm the guy that drives this vehicle. Or I'm the girl that's married to, to this guy. See, because what happens is when you worship stuff, and you worship status, and you worship anything other than God, what happens is you become like it and you begin to identify with that. Whatever it is that defines you, that's what you worship. Look at your checkbook, you see that which you worship. Look at your calendar, you're going to see that which you worship. What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your treasure? What are you doing with your talent? These are the things that reveal what it is that you worship. And as I read through all of these nations, and I read through all of these kings, and I read through all of these things, one thing I know for sure, Anything you worship apart from God is ultimately going to fail you. So the several lessons that we learned here in Daniel chapter 11, the big takeaway for you again is this. God's sovereign. He's on the throne. He rules in the affairs of men. Is he ruling your life? 